All right, let's start. Um, welcome everyone to the last um, session of the Hot Politics Lab meeting of that year of 2021. Um, we're very happy to have today Frederick Hopp here joining us presenting work. Um, Frederick Hopp is a assistant professor at ASCOR here at the University of Amsterdam. Um, he just defended his PhD yesterday at the University of California in Santa Barbara. So again, congratulations Frederick for um, successfully defending your PhD. Um, he has published widely in, in some of our best journals, including Journal of Communication and Computers, Human Behavior, Communication Methods and Measures. Um, he will give a talk about morality and in communication and the brain, and I will hand over the floor to you, Frederick. Great, wonderful. Um, thank you so much for the kind introduction. And yes, I'm still suffering from some of the celebrations of last night, but um, I'll do my best uh, to give this talk today. And um, I slightly uh, changed up the topic a little bit because I figured this was a, a very interdisciplinary audience in, in the past. And so I wanted to make this a bit broader. And so really, really excited to be talking about some of the work uh, that I've been doing mostly over uh, in, in California over the last five years that all relates to how we study morality in media, uh, society, and uh, the brain. And so to jump right into this uh, talk, um, you might wonder what is so special about uh, morality or why do I focus uh, on morality or opposed to really any other concept that one might study? And um, it turns out that moral intuitions are a really central motivator of human behavior in a variety of um, contexts, um, most of them who somehow relates to political communication. So um, as most of you probably already know, um, moral intuitions are central to our group formation. So um, influencing with who we want to keep in our in-group or who we want to keep in our out-group or generally just who we affiliate with. And on top of that, um, Moral intuitions also have a, a centrally shaped just public attitudes, for instance, on vaccination hesitancies or on abortion or on immigration laws. Um, and um, some recent research also suggests that they are quite centrally relevant for how media is being productive uh, or produced. When you think about certain um, political differences in left versus right wing media, and of course, also on the other hand, how it's being uh, selectively exposed to by audiences. Um, there's also some interesting research that suggests that uh, messages that are morally relevant or morally salient diffuse more wildly through uh, social networks. So uh, William Brady has conducted some interesting work here. Um, it also influences how we are voting. Um, whether we're voting for a more conservative party or a liberal party is often also a function of our deeply held moral norms and intuitions. Um, thus, it also matters for our persuasive success. So um, there's some recent research uh, suggesting um, that persuasive messages can have a better or more persuasive effect if they are framed in moral terms that just resonate with the moral norms of the audience. Um, and also, once we start to moralize our, our attitudes, um, we start to see things more in, in these um, sort of uh, black and white schema and um, quickly become a sort of more or less radicalized that we're not so open towards new um, opinions of, of others. Thus, um, unfortunately, also uh, having a strong uh, cause for, for violent protests. And many other behaviors. So this is just to give you a, a quick overview of uh, all of the different areas that um, morality or moral intuitions tap into. And now while morality is a very 
vague maybe concept and a lot of people might understand different things about it. Um, moral foundations theory has been a very pragmatic, useful approach to conceptualize what these moral intuitions consist of. And so MFT has identified uh, five moral foundations. So here, for instance, a notion of care and harm or fairness and cheating. And these have often been described as these so-called individualizing foundations. Um, they often occur in notions about, um, for example, about um, abortion. And on the other hand, there are these so-called binding foundations that consist of uh, loyalty and betrayal, authority versus subversion, and purity versus desecration. Um, and generally, it's also been found that Democrats tend to value these individualizing foundations a bit more and conservatives uh, to value these binding foundations uh, somewhat more. And now, um, Conceptualizing morality in such a way, um, my research mostly tries to understand how do these moral foundations permeate media, society, uh, and the human brain. And so, for instance, on the on the media level, a central question that I've been asking in the past is how can we validly extract moral foundations from media content? And if we can do that reliably, then also perhaps what are some of the societal effects of moralized public discourse? Right? So this relates then how do morally relevant messages permeate society, change attitudes, motivate behaviors. And of course, the central part that connects these two is uh, where and how is morality encoded in the human brain? And how does that relate to our perception of moralized messages and also our behaviors? And a lot of these relationships have been conceptualized and defined in the model of intuitive morality or exemplars or the MIME. So this has been a very central theoretical framework for a lot of my research. So starting with the first question, how can we validly extract moral foundations from media content? And here there are quite a few challenges uh, that we have to sort of keep in mind if we wanna do this type of research. First, um, as most of you might know, morality is a very latent and highly context-dependent phenomenon. So what might be considered morally good in one context might be considered highly immoral in another context. Um, the majority of moral judgments also occur rather fast and intuitively. They reflect more often these gut-level type reaction and not necessarily these more rational, deeply uh, thought about um, considerations. And third, Individuals also quite differ in um, what they deem morally uh, relevant in one context and not in the other. And when we, uh, so for instance, just um, your socialization or where being where in what type of cultural context you're growing up um, very often shapes uh, the moral norms that you hold deeply or that you value strongly. And with all of this in mind, um, this makes the reliable and valid extraction or detection of moral content in media quite challenging. So one very um, sort of popular approach in the past is to just rely on some manually selected word lists that hopefully denote some notion of what's morally good or bad. And already just considering that individuals across different cultures differ in their moral sensibilities, uh, selecting just one small list of words um, might not be that valid or uh, reliable. Um, furthermore, this also really puts a, a challenge on the traditional content analysis logic where we assume that our message that we're analyzing has one true solution or that there's a crown truth of 
what the moral content of that message should be. And if morality is latent and people differ in their sensibilities, that might not be necessarily true. Um, which also complicates just coded training in, in this regard. And uh, fact over five studies that we've, we've conducted, we, uh, um, we noticed that if you try to um, develop or apply these really, really extensive coded trainings, that does not necessarily increase your intercoder reliabilities for measuring more content. Um, and so here we actually also found that considering this, this disagreement among coders as noise is not really helpful because very often we have to flip this around and, and basically try to predict these reliabilities uh, through people's individual differences in their moral sensitivities. So the solutions that we came up with that we found to produce the most valid and reliable content codings were actually to rely on an appropriately uh, trained crowd in combination with a context-aware annotation tool. So that is a bit more intuitive that taps into these small intuitions. And so here we recruited a crowd of around 850 people and just asked them to highlight news articles using this annotation tool um, for what they understand to be related to a particular foundation that we randomly assigned to them. And so this generated around 64,000 um, highlights and that procedure uh, yielded the, the highest, uh, most reliable intercoder uh, correlations. And so now you might say, well, okay, Freddie, this is all nice and good. So does that mean we, every time we wanna code more content, we have to uh, pay for an expensive crowd that takes a long time and so forth. And so, I try to come up with a, a way that maintains some of these benefits um, of this crowdsourced uh, content codings that while also making this scalable. And so here um, I developed uh, the uh, extended moral foundations dictionary. So based on these highlightings that were produced by this crowd, um, I basically start to extract all of these highlights each consisting um, with a, or, or each one is linked to a specific foundation. I do some basic pre-processing on these highlights, like throwing out stop words, and then um, basically just linking all of the remaining words with the foundations with which these were annotated. And then the innovation here was that we do not just assign one word to one moral foundation, um, but rather we calculate the probability that one of these words is associated with a certain foundation. And we did that by looking at how often was a word seen by this coder divided by the total number of times this word was actually highlighted by that coder. So this gives you uh, for each word, um, a range of probabilities that this word is associated with multiple foundations. Then we do some basic thresholding to just throw out words that have overall a very low probability and combine them in one final dictionary. Um, we found, for instance, right here, just to give you some face validity of, of this dictionary, um, words that received very high probability for care, where, for example, um, compassion or uh, committing or welcomed, whereas words that had a higher probability in the harm foundation, where it's just tortured, cruel, um, and, and this face validity uh, extends towards the other foundations as well. But then we also wanted to see, um, does this dictionary improve the predictive validity over previous moral foundations dictionaries? And so here indeed, we found a fourfold increase in the explained variance of a news article share counts based on uh, foundation scores derived from the EMFD over previous moral foundations dictionaries. 
And the Sanctity Foundation turned out to be an especially strong predictor of share counts. And if I have convinced you that this is a good software and you are more curious to apply this uh, for your own text scoring, I encourage you to check out our EMFD score software, which is open source and hopefully well documented to extract more content um, from text messages. So after hopefully um, solving or at least yeah, addressing some of these earlier um, limitations, um, I then wanted to know how can we capture these dynamic transactions that might exist between morally relevant messages on the one hand and socio-political events on the other hand. So the central aims of this type of research were, can we capture dynamic transactions between morally relevant news coverage and socio-political events? And if this is possible, can we learn the statistical dependency between moral news frames and real world events to then forecast future news event careers? So let me conceptualize this a little bit more. Um, say there is a protest happening somewhere in the United States. And after this protest, um, there is some news framing about this protest. Some uh, news agencies are covering that event. Now, this is not terribly surprising. This is how news coverage works. But what's a little less intuitive and also I think quite fascinating is that through this process of frame setting, so through framing these events in a certain way, this might actually lead to new events, we could say to new or subsequent protesting, which then again are being covered by the news, creating these dynamic transactions. And since each of these events has a time code, we can think of that as a sequence of events in news. And so I was then curious, are there some statistical dependency between how these events are morally framed and how that leads to the onset of future events? So is this possible to capture this relationship and then based on the uh, previous framing of these events to predict uh, novel events in the future? So to address this question, we of course had to uh, collect large amounts of event and news data. And so here we relied on the global database of events, language and tone or GDELT. Um, for which we developed an um, user-friendly interface called Interface for Communication uh, Research or ICOR and pulled around three and a half million uh, US-based news articles so that were published by US news sources between January 1st, 2016 and September 30, uh, 2018. And then to derive the moral framing of these articles, um, we used uh, the Moral Foundation's dictionary and assign each article with a moral frame based on the category that had the highest word counts there. And so um, linking that to some of the events that were mentioned in these news articles, you could, for example, just again, for some face validity, see that events that discussed fighting were highest in harm, um, for example, or events that uh, discussed providing aid were higher in care. Um, and all of, all of these event types were automatically derived from this news article using the Cameo code system. Um, here you can ask me um, some more in the, in the Q&A subsequently. But in total, we detected around 500,000 unique events in the United States. And you can see that spikes in here, protest events did indeed uh, respond to events that were uh, happening at that point in time. And to then capture a, a statistical relationship uh, among these uh, news event sequences, we used a hidden Markov model. 
So first we created a sequence, um, as I explained earlier, between events on the one hand and the framing of these events on the other hand. And then we fed this event frame sequence into an HMM that basically just learns which combinations of news and events or news frames and events are more likely to co-occur together within a certain state. Yeah, so you can think of maybe uh, one state as peaceful. So here we have perhaps some um, yeah, discussions of maybe um, foreign aid being given to another state that are surrounded by frames of care, whereas we might be in, an, in another state in society where we see more uh, protest events that are covered with harm frames. But the really important thing here is that the model then learns which uh, frames and events co-occur in these states. So when we zoom in on one of these states, we could see, okay, um, some of these events are covered more often by uh, particular types of moral frames. And then when we are in a given state based on the events and frames that we've seen in the past, we try to make a prediction, what are the next events and frames that we're likely to see? And so here we just found um, for predicting uh, events that have to do with material conflict, our HMM actually had a pretty good accuracy. So it correctly predicted the trend of whether there would be more or less material conflict events at a certain location with around 70% um, uh, accuracy. So um, I just thought um, that this is a uh, that was quite encouraging and um, also points to these HMMs as a potential moral conflict early warning system. And of course, in, in future iterations of this work, we want to apply a more rigorous capturing of news events and um, moral news frames. So finally, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, what we've learned about where and how morality is encoded in the human brain. This was a lot of work that I've done during my uh, dissertation. And so the first question here that we addressed is how can we map where in the human brain moral judgment is happening? And so for that purpose, we recruited a sample of 64 participants that was roughly split into one third demo, uh, as participants that identified as Democrats, one third um, that identified as Republicans, and one third that identified as either independent or unsure. So we had a good variance in political affiliation here. And then these people, uh, uh, underwent an fMRI experiment that consisted of three runs. And in these runs, um, people responded to these moral foundation vignettes. And so you can think of a vignette just as a short textual description of a moral violation. So for instance, you see a man leaving his family business to go work for their main competitor, a violation of in-group or loyalty. And then they had to rate, is this morally wrong or not? And they did that for a bunch of uh, moral foundations versus social norm as a control condition. And just on the behavioral level, we already see indeed people judge vignettes pertaining to moral violations as more morally wrong compared to violations of the social norm uh, category. So we took that as some evidence that indeed there was some uh, difference in moral judgments of, of these categories. And when looking at uh, the brain, we did a standard general linear model. I'm not sure how familiar you are with, with fMRI. I'm, I'm happy to explain here more in the Q&A, but we found a reliable, dissociable um, brain network that responds to each of these um, moral foundations versus social norm control categories. So um, we see these regions such as the, the precuneus or also the temporal parietal junction and the medial prefrontal cortex. So common regions that were 
identified in the theory of mind network. So whenever we're trying to um, mentalize with others to identify what is an intention of an act. And uh, we took this just as a, as a good confirmation for um, identifying where it's, where are more foundations or violations they're often encoded in the brain. Um, and we also found using um, what's called a searchlight approach that, um, so basically to interpret this map right here, um, all of these sort of little clusters and points show that at these locations, um, a computer classifier that was trained on these neural patterns was able to figure out, is this person right now uh, evaluating a moral foundation that's related to harm or to fairness or to cheating? So it, it makes a prediction of what is the current moral violation this person is, is processing. So it shows where in the brain or where the brain does make a distinction between these different uh, moral categories. And finally, um, in the interest of time, I'm just gonna skip one slide ahead. Um, I wanted to then know, does political ideology actually modulate the processing of political messages? And so here, the same subject as before, watched 22 political attack advertisements while being in the scanner, 11 attacking uh, Clinton and 11 attacking Trump. Um, and then I just computed how similar are subjects in their political ideology, so just measured uh, between liberal and conservative. And then I also did the same matrix to measure how similar are these participants in their neural response. And then using a technique called ISRSA, I just looked at how good does this uh, individual similarity in political ideology matrix fit the matrix of similarity in neural responses. So um, we can measure this coherence with Spearman's row. And indeed, I found that people of a more similar political ideology had more similar neural responses, which I think is some uh, very interesting early evidence that political polarization might already happen at the neural level. Now, to conclude this talk, um, I hope that this research demonstrates that morality indeed permeates and shapes human communication at multiple and interconnected levels. And so um, I think that going forward to really understand how people create, process, and respond to moralized communication requires um, an interdisciplinary effort uh, where I think communication scholars, political scientists, and psychologists can um, do some very, very promising future research. And talking about that, some of the things I'm currently looking into is using um, some more advanced deep learning and context-aware moral sentiment mining techniques that don't rely on dictionaries, but that are able to really capture the entire context in which moral for, uh, words are named. And as I already uh, mentioned earlier, um, I'm really interested in further exploring these neural models of uh, political polarization processes. And uh, with that, I'd like to uh, thank you for your attention. Uh, here's a picture of me tinkering with the MRI scanner with hopefully uh, clean socks on. And um, yeah, if you're curious in, in this work, please um, either follow me on Twitter or shoot me an email. And for now, I just I look forward to any questions that you have. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Freddie, so much. This was a very, very interesting presentation covering uh, like so many different like levels from, from the social level to the very like deep individual neural level. So it, this is like fantastic line of work, um, uh, at least uh, for me. Uh, I also work a little bit with, with um, uh, political neuroscience and how people respond like to similar messages perhaps. 
So I'm particularly interested and fascinated by your talk. Uh, before we, we go about like any uh, questions that people online could also post on the Q&A box, um, I'd like to give the floor for any clarification questions to, to the people who are here. Uh, I think that uh, Christian had one already. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for the talk. It was super fascinating. Um, about your, 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 the part of your presentation about your event study, um, I didn't really get um, what exactly what you did there. Can you clarify a bit like what's an event here? Um, yeah. and, and do you actually predict an event happening or do you predict an event being covered in a specific moral frame? And how, how what's the mechanism then that relates um, the coverage with a moral frame and time X? How that relate? How does that relate to the coverage of time X in the yeah. future? Perhaps if I may add like one sub question to this, um, what specific like issues that, that you were interested at in defining as events, for instance, like economic events or protests solely? So what, what was your focus on and why? Yeah, absolutely. Let me just maybe go back to this slide. So to perhaps let me start by answering the first question, what, what is an event here, right? So um, based on these three and a half million news articles that we pulled, uh, in this GDELT database, they have an automated event detection system, which is working in a way that it looks at subject verb object pairs to then identify different event categories. Those include protest events, those include when someone is making a speech or when there is a meeting between the you know, political elites. This is all automatic, automatically extracted and grouped into certain categories. So for example, the, the timeline that I'm showing you here are articles that mention protest events. And so these spikes in protests did indeed correspond to protests that were happening at the uh, real world during that time. So does this address the, the first part of the question, like what is an event here? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, cool. And then the second question, uh, if I remember correctly, is what am I actually predicting? Um, so what I'm predicting is with the, the nice thing with, with these hidden Markov models is because um, they, they learn both. So they learn which news frames and which events appear together. So you can think about that um, maybe broken down more uh, in a simpler case. Think about um, the different seasons of a year, right? So where we have um, summer, fall, winter, spring. And so during these seasons, you're more likely to observe certain things, colder temperatures in winter and warmer clothes, right? And so you could either predict the temperature or perhaps what people are wearing. And so in, a, in the same context here with these hidden Markov models, we are able to either say, we would like to now predict um, events or frames. And so what this model is really then doing is it says, based on the sequence that I just observed, what are the next events that I'm likely to uh, see in the future? And so what I'm predicting here specifically is I've not predicted one specific event type. So I'm not saying I predict a protest, but I've grouped together uh, events of a, of a similar kind. So there are different sort of sub-definitions of protests. So I'm grouping these together and what I'm predicting really is the density. So the general trend. Uh, in these in these forecasts. So are we more likely to observe more protests or less protests in the future? Does that clarify things a little? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so Thanks. much.
Cool. Uh, I see that Heis has raised his hand, so perhaps uh, Heis has a clarification question or another type of question. <clears throat> thanks, uh, Ivantis, and thanks, uh, Freddie, for the very interesting presentation. It's really nice how I have a quite a bit, uh, how many moral foundations are there? Mm. Uh, I think original theory, we had five. Uh, in one of your figures, I saw only four. But uh, what also concerns me a bit is that, uh, well, uh, I've seen some research, I've done some research on my own regarding moral foundations. And, and, and typically, people don't actually retrieve these four or five dimensions. So I'm interested to hear your perspective yeah. on that. So I mean, just first to be absolutely clear, uh, I absolutely share and I'm not saying that moral foundations theory is the only and the best theory to explain or to describe uh, human morality or human moral judgment. There have been recent theories such as the morality as cooperation theory uh, developed by Oliver Curry uh, and colleagues that take a quite different approach to it. Um, the reason why I've used moral uh, MFT in the past is really just because it was very pragmatic to address the questions that I was interested in and that it, it provides this, this space of moral foundations. And um, one of the things I, I also found in the past is indeed, um, if I can just go back here, when we just look at the factor structure in questionnaires or really in measuring text is very often, um, I mean, MFT predicts a five factor model through looking at these five foundations, but very often you get a much better fit if you only predict two categories. Um, and that will fall into these individualizing versus binding foundations. So um, this is, I guess, one valid criticism of MFT. And um, the other question concerning how many moral foundations there actually are. I mean, John Hyde and, and colleagues, when they kind of created it, they said, well, right now we identified five, there might be six or seven or eight or even more. Um, so for instance, with the moral foundation vignettes that we looked at, there is this sixth category uh, oppression, which has not been covered originally, but um, this one is at least in the activity patterns and also in how people respond to it, very, very similar to the uh, fairness cheating uh, foundation. So, so that one has quite some, some overlap with it um, as well. Yeah. But what I'm currently after and what I think speaks actually for MFT is when we look at, at the brain and specifically when we look at these classification results, I mean, just to maybe elucidate that one more time, the computer here is being given a range um, of brain activity patterns. Each pattern corresponds to one mole foundation. And then on a holdout set, I'm asking the convict foundation that this person is currently um, processing. So if they all have exactly the same pattern, we could not discriminate that. And so since we have seven different categories, the chance classification would be around 14%. And at these sort of peak areas where we sometimes even see 22% accuracy, now this is not a lot more, very latent, higher order valid evidence for the at least dissociable structure of these norms. Now, apologies, that was a long answer to the question, but hopefully things are a bit clearer now. Hey, Freddie, um, 
Unfortunately, we, we also have some problems with um, uh, with, with the, the Wi-Fi here, so we, we heard partially your answer, but I think we got most of the gist um, of it. Okay. So thank you for that. Um, are there other questions from people who are like in the room here? And perhaps I could also take the, the liberty uh, and ask you a question. Actually, I'm, I'm interested in how you you like uh, selected these brain regions that you looked at. So did you follow like a traditional like a uh, ROIS like um, um, uh, approach? And uh, if yes, then how were these ROIS uh, defined? Um, beforehand, and I wonder, like, whether you know you would see any like added value if you had followed like a, a convol convolution, co sorry, convolutional networks approach instead, whereby you could um, just let the data practically speak on its own without having certain priors about where in the brain you might have these. Uh, um, uh, you would expect activity uh, differences. So I wonder what's your what's your ideas about about right. that where in the brain we should look at for morality. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the results you see here was just a very standard whole brain uh, analysis, so not a priori. So uh, this was corrected for multiple comparisons. And then I made a contrast uh, categories. So um, this was not done a priori. Um, but I do think um, what is really promising here is when you, um, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Neurosynth, the meta-analytic uh, database that exists. And so if you go to Neurosynth, And I will show you regions that are consistently activated whenever people study moral judgment, you get a very, very similar uh, pattern. And in fact, if I were to do this on a, on a a priori or just ROI basis, um, I would have also selected again the precunious, particularly also the RTPJ and the DMPFC, um, as they've just been shown to be very consistently activated when people uh, engage in, in moral decision making. Um, yeah, so again, uh, unfortunately, we, we only heard like a, um, a fragments of your answer. So that's a pity. I did get the, the, the neurosynth synth, uh, um, uh, mm -hmm. synth so I'll, I'll dive a little bit more into that because I'm not very familiar with it. So thank you for this information. And um, I also have another question <coughs> that is perhaps a little bit more general. Um, so that, that relates to the brain networks that, that we typically, you know, we, we might be interested in, in uh, finding out like structural differences in the brain or like network differences in the brain um, uh, that correspond like to ideology or at least uh, moral, uh, the, the moral foundations as in your studies in the line of work. Um, I'm interested about the relation between or whether you see any relation between, you know, the confidence we have in this data and the fact that this data is often um, very highly um, biased from sleep patterns, individual differences in sleep patterns. So I've been um, I've been coming across lines of work lately that seem to suggest uh, that individuals who sleep differently seem to develop very different uh, neural activation patterns over the same stimulus, regardless of any other like um, like fundamental factors, including political ideology in this case. So I wonder whether it, you controlled for like sleep deprivation in your studies, 
whether you think that that might be relevant? And if yes, where do you see this connection coming from? So there is some line of work showing that, uh, for instance, uh, conservatives tend to consume more media content late at night. And perhaps that might be you know, the connecting bridge to why these people are more sensitive to processing fear, for example. So I just like wonder whether you have some thoughts about that and uh, whether you have control for this variable in your studies. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. This is actually the first time I heard someone linking sleep deprivation to political ideology. So I really, really appreciate you making that comment. Um, of course, that also addresses your questions. So I've not uh, looked into how uh, individual differences in sleep deprivation modulate that. I don't even think we, we have that data. So the data was collected uh, in, in 2016 in the, in the summer, so right before the uh, presidential election in the US. And um, I mean, I, I controlled for all the, you know, typical um, individual differences um, or, you know, that, that you get with um, cerebral spinal fluid and scanner drift and all of that. But um, I do have media exposure variables for each uh, individual. And so here I might be able to see, do we see, you know, that um, conservatives um, actually, you know, uh, watch media more during late at night and whether that leads to certain uh, sleep deprivation outcomes. But thank you so much. I will I'll definitely look into that in the future. Yeah. I'd be more than happy to, uh, to talk more over a cup of coffee or beer. Yeah, absolutely. When, when conditions allow, of course, and meet right. you first. Absolutely, thank you so much. Um, are there any other questions um, in, the, in the chat box? Um, I can see that there is one at least. So just give me a sec to read it out loud for you. So we have a question from Matthijs. Um, hello, Dan. Thanks, Frederick. Fantastic research. Unfortunately, I had to miss part of the presentation. So please forgive me if I ask a question that you already uh, elaborated upon. Uh, it's two sub questions practically. Number one, on the side of event types, what is the difference between appeal and provide aid? They look very similar in terms of average number of keywords. And the second sub-question is, could you say a bit more about the neural models of political polarization processes you mentioned in the last slide? Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Matthias, uh, for the questions. So to just uh, respond to the, to the first question, I encourage you to look up the Cameo codebook. So it's C-A-M-E-O. Cameo, um, which I think stands for Conflict and Mediation Event Observation. And there you get a, a really nice sort of taxonomy on, on what the exact definitions of all of these different event types are. I don't know uh, them from the, from the top of my head right now, but um, those should give you um, a, a clearer distinction on what separates them. And so um, for, the, for the second um, answer, on uh, these, uh, yeah, on these models. So the technique here that I'm using is called intersubject um, representational similarity analyses, or ISRSA, that was uh, developed by uh, Emily Finn and colleagues. And what this method really tries to to answer or taps into is: Do individuals that have certain similarities in their traits or maybe in their behavior also exert similar neural responses? So this is the very basic uh, question uh, that you, you wanna answer with this model. And so here I um, again constructed a, a matrix that just captures pairwise similarity between um, uh, political ideology. So, I mean, this is just a placeholder, but you can think of then you see a certain individual. So pairs are more similar in their political ideology. They fall, maybe they're very close on conservatism and others are more close on, on the liberal uh, side, 
So this is your trait matrix. And then um, I just looked at when people were processing these political attack advertisements, I get a time course for every region of the brain. And then I can look at, for example, right here, I can look at in the precuneus, how similar is this time course for all of these individuals. And then in a final step, you can, for every brain region, you can relate how close does the rank of subjects in these uh, matrices match between the traits and the neural similarities. So for every uh, region of the brain, you get one of these Spearman row values. And so what I'm plotting down here is then for the entire brain, um, what's the, how good is the coherence between traits and neural processing? And since this region is shifted quite to the right, on the whole brain level, you see there is some coherence, meaning people with a more similar political ideology are also processing things in a more similar way. And uh, this was specifically true for these moral brain networks, including DMPFC and TPJ. Now, one super quick addition to that is another way we could test this is we could just group individuals and in Democrats and Republicans, and then within each group, look at their similarity in neural responses, and then uh, com uh, compare, well, where does this similarity differ from within the same ideology to the group of a different ideology? Um, Van Barr and colleagues, I think they just had a recent uh, PNAS paper where they um, applied such an, such an approach. Um, so hopefully that uh, taps a, a bit more into your, into your second question. I think it does. Um, thank you. This is very informative also for the, new, um, for the newest methods that you um, suggest. There is another question, uh, this time from uh, Isabella de Basso. She's also a PhD student here at the Politics Lab. Um, uh, thanks, for, thanks a lot for your talk. I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about the last slide the difference between Democrats and Republicans. Are these different patterns you find the result of Democrats and Republicans processing moral tran transgressions differently? or of differences in processing of information based on whether participants in party versus my out party being attacked. That means- Yeah, that's- yeah. Right, um, fantastic question. Thanks, thanks Isabella. Um, so what I'm showing you right here is actually not differentiating uh, between whether it was an anti-Trump or an anti-Clinton um, ad. So this is for the entire range and just showing you a political ideology does modulate it. But in my uh, dissertation, I actually ran this model and I saw that we have um, closer um, processing of when your own candidate is being attacked. So whenever Democrats are processing clips uh, attacking Clinton, they are more similar in their response uh, compared to when Republicans um, process clips of, of anti-Trump. So when it's your own group that's being attacked, people become more similar, which I found quite interesting. Yeah, but that's a that's an excellent question. And again, this is very preliminary. This is right out of the of the bat of my of my dissertation, and I'm really just starting to to dive deeper and explore this model in, in greater depth. Yeah. Thanks. That's that's very um, uh, that's a very interesting finding. I'm very curious to to, to tackle and uh, this uh, further and see where this goes. Um, okay, so uh, there is one more question I see from Heis, who has raised his hand. Uh, hi, shall we pass the floor to you? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, I wanted to write in the Q&A box, but uh, I'm not allowed. <laughs> um, so, uh, 
I've been thinking for a while about uh, political ideology and, 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 and being originally trained as a, as, a, as a political scientist, we have quite a different understanding of what, what ideology is or how we should measure it than, than what is typical in, in, in neuroscience or yeah. in psychology. And um, I think, uh, um, really, no, I, I don't really have a very specific question. That's why I should have written it down. But, <laughs> but um, so um, in, in political science, it's common to derive, to think about I, I, political systems as, 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 as sort of, there are multiple ideological uh, uh, cleavages. And so a typical party system is characterized by two or three uh, major uh, cleavages. Uh, uh, and, uh, and and the, U the U.S. system is is is, is uniquely unidimensional, yep. uh, and so I wonder how this maps onto moral foundations, and maybe more fundamentally, what is really the definition of ideology if it is something that has to do with be fundamental belief systems? Then is our moral foundations just not the same yep. as ideology? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there were also some really interesting papers that try to explain the relationship. What predicts what better? Is it your political ideology predicting your right moral foundations, or is it that moral foundations predict ideology? So I think that's still a a, a can of worms that we have to sort of open at some point. Um, but one thing also um, right here, of course, I, I totally understand. I just took a, a continuous measure. Right on on sort of from zero to one hundred. Um, if you're one hundred, you're very strong conservative. If you're a zero, you're a very strong liberal. So I do see that this is a very um, specifically for political scientists, not very sort of in depth measure. Um, however, we do have um, a bunch of additional uh, other measures that might get into this a little bit better. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, Society Works Best Scale um, that kind of tries to see the society works better if wealth is distributed or in the hands of a few. And so that gets a little bit more into a multidimensional, I think, um, measurement or of political ideology that might be uh, a little bit closer to the, to the real world. Um, so yeah, going forward, I, I think um, I'd love to have a few more uh, conversations with you on how we can get a better um, index of, of political ideology here. And yeah, given this was a, a US-based sample, um, the degree to which this generalizes to others, uh, yeah, societies, nations is also, yeah, still uh, work to be done. If, if I might, might just give a suggestion, I, I think also that, that, that uh, I think in the end, the American data is likely to be as dimensional as the European data. It's just that we focus so much on these two parties. Right. Mm -hmm. Within the parties, there's huge variation between Republican evangelicals and the more classical, yep. secular, yep. more secular, yep. and and, yep. and we kind of, yeah, we seem to kind of ignore that stuff. Yeah, yeah, which is why I think like for this specific analysis, I did not group people into different parties specifically because I looked at like scatter plots before, and I did see that there were two like Democrats that were super conservative. Yeah, and so I think this this more continuous measure might might at least get at that a little bit. Yeah. Um, if I may perhaps um, take advantage of the few minutes that we have left to sort of broaden up a little bit um, and reflect a little bit more on this uh, last question on ideology. 
Um, so I, I'd be very interested on, on your personal take on the extent to which ideology could be a hardwired thing. And perhaps, you know, this is a wild question given your line of work, but um, how about morality? So would you, I mean, you show that there exist some structural differences in the brain, right? Like with morality, would you anticipate that these, these are like hardwired systems that we're born with? Or would you see those as like systems that, that we adapt to and ideology being something as a sort of acceptation, a biological acceptation of these systems? So it's a, yeah. a little bit more like philosophical question, but I think it's a yeah. nice way to finish this wonderful talk today. Um, yeah, no, I think this is an excellent question. And it, I, yeah, it really gets into the nature versus nurture uh, discussion, right? And so I again think that MFT is, is very strong in here and that it says that, well, we might be born with these cognitive modules um, similar to like language understanding that we have these networks in our brain that will allow us to learn a certain language later on, but it does not um, restrict us to one language only. And so if we adapt that to our, our moral uh, values, I think there's been some really beautiful work showing that historical pathogen prevalence in a country um, nicely predicts the uh, endorsement of the more binding in-group foundations. So in nations that suffered more strongly from a more uh, stronger historical pathogen prevalence, people try to stay a bit closer in the in-group. They're typically a bit more xenophobic. And so I think that shows that there is this variance that we see based on where people do uh, grow up and the cultural uh, socialization that they experience. So I think that leaves this, this actually open to both that we might be born with these foundations, but then the, the type of buildings that emerge based on these foundations might depend on our um, yeah, experience of our daily, the daily life. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, this was a very nice and concise reflection on a very complex topic. I really appreciate your uh, opinion. Yeah, thank you for having me. I mean, this was this was super fun, and I really, really hope that in the in the future, early coming year, we can all uh, get a coffee or a beer and chat more about these things. Um, I hope there's there's definitely plenty of uh, shared interests. So great. It feels like this absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, and with this and that, I think we, we only have a few minutes left and I'll pass the, the floor back to Christian, who's going to um, tell us a little bit about the, the future um, speakers uh, for uh, 2022. Yeah, so, Christian, uh, back to you. Thanks again a lot, uh, Frederick. That was a fascinating talk and very, very interesting to talk to you here. Um, um, thanks, thanks again. We will, of course, hand you over the by now infamous hot coffee, hot, hot coffee, hot politics live mark. <laughs> that um, is perfectly suitable to have hot coffee in there. Uh, we will hand it over to you, of course, when you when we meet back on campus here, um, if Omicron at some point allows us to do that, right? Um, right. And if you're still here then. Um, as I said, this was the last meeting of the Politics Lab for, for this year. Um, we will go into our Christmas and New Year's break. I hope you guys um, all do that as well. Um, we will return back, in, back uh, strongly in January uh, with a lot of a lot of very interesting talks. We have a very interesting lineup that is already uh, mostly published online, so you can already have a look. Um, just a little outlook, what's gonna, what is waiting for, for you. Um, we start again on January 14th with Marta Otten, who will give a talk about um, how political convictions can change basic cognition. And we will then have a couple of different talks. Uh, 28th of January, Israel Weisman Manor. Manu will give a talk about um, from corruption to cyberspace. 
Um, 18th of February, we have Graduate Friday again, where uh, Michael Holman will give a talk and Chiara Vialli will give a talk. And the beginning of March, 4th of March, we have Matthias Rodin, who will tell us about an experiment that involves features and Manip uh, having 7,000 people as participants in his experiment. So that sounds very interesting and cool. So we're very looking forward to that. Um, that's from us. Again, uh, have a nice have a nice break and see you again in January.